0: Some of you, like me, may have grown up watching the Basil Brush Show, which each week concluded with the telling of a dramatic adventure story. And in that moment when the hero was in the most difficult predicament imaginable, the reader of the story, whether Mr. Rodney or Mr. Derek would would suddenly slam the book closed and announce, that's all we have time for this week, Basil. Much to Basil's frustration and that's where Trevor left us last Sunday morning with the heroes of our story Esther and Mordecai in a terrible plight the clock was ticking a date had been set for all the Jews to be slaughtered by their neighbors in now less than 11 months according to the edict promoted by the wicked Haman that had been dispatched all across the vast Empire this act of annihilation would take place. Maybe it's helpful to picture it like this. You, you, you've seen the, the, the scenario where someone's attempting to defuse a bomb and the clock says 20 minutes to detonation. And the, the, the person is struggling to figure out what to do and thinks, oh, there's a battery, I'll pull out the battery and see what happens. So he pulls out the battery and suddenly the clock switches to saying only 20 seconds to detonation. In a sense, that's what's, what's happening here. For the Jewish people, there were some months before their execution would come. But for Mordecai, he only has a few hours and counting until he faces death. Amen. Had commissioned the erecting of a 75 foot high, the ESV says gallows, but it was much more likely to have been just a great big wooden stake, a, a tree trunk with a sharpened point. For the Persians were the first to pioneer the, the, the art of crucifixion as a form of execution. And in its earliest days it, it consisted simply of a, a stake onto which someone was impaled, and they were left there until they died. And that was likely to be Haman's plan for Mordecai. And that's where we left it last Sunday. That was all we had time for. And we were left with a sense of deep frustration. For Esther had found favour in the sight of the king and he had deigned to grant to her anything she requested up to half of the kingdom. And with Esther and her people about to die, and she and all the Jews in Susa praying and fasting, surely this was God opening the door for her. All she had to do was ask. But rather than ask that her people be spared, she invites the king and Haman to join her in a feast that she had prepared. And you might think to yourself, well, maybe that's a good idea. I can see what you're doing here Esther butter him up with some nice food and choice wine for we all know that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach and all that and so for the second time the king at the feast makes this ridiculously generous offer Esther chapter 5 and verse 6 we read and as they were drinking wine after the feast the king said to Esther What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. And you think to yourself, another chance. This is it. This is the moment. Grab it with two hands, Esther. Make the big ask. And disappointingly, such an anticlimax for all those who are watching on. Esther simply says, come back tomorrow. For another feast and then I'll let you know what I want. How many chances does Esther need? We can't make sense of what's happening here. We don't know why she delayed for another day. But of course if you know the story you will understand that God is in control and that he has determined the perfect timing for all that will unfold. And, and son Lu, as we start into chapter 6, all that has gone before now makes sense. So we turn to our text for this morning, and there we read in chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It just so happened that the king couldn't get a good night's sleep on that particular evening. Was it something that he had eaten? Something that Esther had served up to him? We don't know. But what do you do when you cannot get a good night's sleep and you find yourself tossing and turning on your bed at night? In my days as assistant in Rathcoul, some of the folk there used to suggest that I could have a great tape ministry for insomniacs. But surely, Even more sleep-inducing than one of my sermons would have been to hear the minutes of a meeting read to you. Now the Bible makes it clear that God is sovereign. He rules over the sleep of kings. Whether it's in Pharaoh's dreams of cows and corn, which led to the rapid promotion of Joseph from prison cell to second-in-command in the land of Egypt in a single day, or Nebuchadnezzar's dreams of a golden statue, which led to Daniel's rapid promotion from captive slave to royal advisor. God is in control. He has stolen the sleep from the king. And so poor Ahasuerus listens to his servants drone on. This was proposed by Harbona, seconded by Carcas, and agreed. Resolution number four, reward for Mordecai the Jew for his reporting of the plot to kill the king. Ahasuerus suddenly, rather than being lulled to sleep by what is being read, is, is stirred into action. He is now reminded that five years previously, Mordecai had been instrumental in foiling an assassination plot on his life. And yet nothing had been done to reward this man for his loyalty. And it's helpful for us to know that in the ancient world, those who helped to protect the king's life were always richly rewarded. This was a practice kings were very eager to promote. It was good for the longevity of their reign if people knew that there would be very rich rewards to be gained by anyone who unearthed the plot against the throne. And as we noted a couple of weeks ago, somehow the usually efficient civil service of Persia had overlooked this act of loyalty. God working even through an administrative error. Now it seems that Ahasuerus is not very good at making decisions, and when when anything has to be decided, he always looks for advice. Even then, in the early hours of the morning, when he has in mind a plan to reward Mordecai, he goes looking to see who might be available within his courts to give him advice on this matter. And it just so happened that the only person available was Haman entered the royal courts very early and urgently because he had a pressing request to make of the king. And what a privileged position we have. We have front row seats to see these two men converge both having Mordecai on their minds. Haman wants to kill him. Ahasuerus wants to honour him. And in Haman's mind well this is his request is certain to be granted He's convinced of this because the king's already signed off on the slaughter of an entire people group. What by comparison would be the taking of one life? But before Haman can can present his request, the king has his own pressing question. Verse 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? Oh yes, Haman's request that Mordecai be killed is urgent, but that's now superseded by the importance of giving the king a good answer to the king's question. Because, as Haman says to himself, whom would the king delight to honour more than me? And we get a sense here in the writing that Haman doesn't need to take time to think or to come up with a response to the king's question. It's as if he'd been mulling this thought for quite some time. It just flows from his lips. Verses 7 to 9. Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honour, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn and the horse which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes, and let the horse, be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honour, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." And let me pause and thinking through the story and just take a moment to learn a lesson from the example of this wicked man. For we need to note that Haman is crippled with pride. I'm sure all of you know the words of Proverbs 16 verse 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We know that Haman is trusting in his position, his possessions, and his popularity. And of course, as Trevor helped us see last week, even with this, he's not completely satisfied. And we can guess, reading between the lines, from Haman's suggestions here, that he has long held the desire to be king. Wearing the king's robes, riding on the king's horse, surely he has his heart set on the king's throne. It's as if this is merely a a dress rehearsal for that great day. And we need to see that, that the pride is the original sin and the author of all sins. Satan was cast out from heaven. Why? Because he wanted to take the throne of heaven for himself. He wanted to be God. Adam was cast from the Garden of Eden. Why? Because he yielded to the serpent's temptation. In Genesis 3 verse 5, that through eating the fruit, you will be like God. Both Satan and Adam, because of their pride, were cast out from the presence of God, cast from their place of power, cast out of paradise. Such a fate is about to befall Naaman as it must. Proverbs tells us, Proverbs 16, verse 5, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Punishment is certain for those whose hearts are crippled with pride and for those who set themselves up against God. We read in James 4, verse 6, God opposes the pride. Back to the story. Can you imagine the look that appeared on Haman's face when the king said to him, as we read in verse 10, Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Haman is crippled by pride, but by contrast, Mordecai remains confident in God. In the old TV quiz show, The Weakest Link, the announcer, Johnny Briggs, would often say something like this. He would say, well, in a dramatic reversal of fortune, Tom is now the weakest link. Brian is the strongest link. And here in a dramatic reversal of fortune Mordecai who the last time we heard of him was sitting clothed in sackcloth and covered in ash and dust now finds himself wearing the king's robes being led through the city astride the king's horse by his arch enemy Haman Proverbs again Proverbs 29:23 states one's pride will bring him low but he who is lowly in spread will obtain honour. It seems that Mordecai is not overly impressed by his experience. He just goes back to work, back to the king's gate to resume his duties. But Haman, Haman is devastated. Verses 12 and 13. Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise man and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Haman's wife and friends, who had prompted Mordecai to have Mordecai killed, now a bit like a pack of wolves, sense a wounded animal among them, and they turn on him and they declare him to be doomed. They understood their writing was on the wall for Haman. And even before Esther can put her plan to action, it's obvious even to these cold-hearted pagans that God is on the move. God is at work. At work for Haman's destruction. And at that very moment, The knock comes to the door. Haman is summons to go to attend Esther's feast. And that's all we've got time for this week, Basil. So what lessons can we learn from this chapter? Well, we need to see that the hiddenness of God in this story reminds us that often in life's circumstance, God's hand remains unseen by us but while we may not see him we must always believe that he is working. The psalmist writes Psalm 62 verse 8, Trust in him at all times O people pour out your heart before him God is a refuge for us. Sometimes God is unseen and certainly there will be times when we have to acknowledge that we do not know what God is doing and yet even then we ought to have confidence that everything that God is doing is good and yes there will be times when we find ourselves torn with many doubts but we must rest assured that at the right time in the perfect moment God will intervene to save his people spoiler alert the story of Esther ends with the people of God being spared from this terrible threat of destruction that hung over them. The unseen God shielded them from danger. But please understand that sometimes this unseen God allows his people to suffer. He allows his people to be crushed. Does this mean that God doesn't care? Does this mean that he's withdrawn his love? He's he's turned his back on the people of his choice? Not at all. And we know this. We know this with certainty. Because Jesus went to the cross. There he suffered and died for our sins. There he was crying out to his father to spare him this pain, yet he ultimately humbled himself to his father's good and perfect will. And as a consequence, Paul writes in Philippians 2 and 9, Therefore God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You know, the parable that Jesus teaches in in Luke 16 of of Lazarus and the rich man and how Lazarus lay at this rich man's gate and and suffered a miserable life. But in a dramatic reversal of fortune, after death he found himself in the care of Abraham's bosom and the delight of a heavenly home while the rich man languished afar off in hell. Jesus says in Matthew 23 verse 12, those words with which you began our service. For those who exalt themselves will be humble. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. We don't know when that that will be. But we do know that it will be. And God's people know that however blessed their lives are, however many times it seems that God has intervened for our cause, it will not be. Until we see God face to face, that we will receive and understand the true blessing that Jesus died to gain for us. Then we will be able to say with Paul in Romans eight eighteen, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, have you humbled yourself? before the one who, in humility, gave himself up to death on the cross for you. If you haven't already done so, if you haven't already placed your life and your future eternal life into the hands the kneel-pierced hands of Jesus, please think seriously about this. Do get in touch so that I, I can help you in any way possible that you might know and have this wonderful assurance of a glorious eternity.